When it comes to opioid agonist take-home doses, perhaps dispensing a little more isn't such a bad thing. I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strauss. We're speaking today with Tara Gomes, epidemiologist and principal investigator at the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network. Tara is the lead author of a recent JAMA Network open article on this topic. Welcome to the program, Tara. Hi, thanks for having me. This was a retrospective analysis that was made possible thanks to COVID. What exactly were you trying to assess? We really wanted to know when the pandemic arrived and we saw this rapid shift in guidance around take-home doses for OAT, what that really meant for people who are receiving treatment. Because you know this is something that's been asked for for quite a long time for more relaxed access to take-home doses because of the challenges in terms of quality of life that frequent interactions with pharmacies require. And so we saw an important opportunity not only to evaluate how this worked within the pandemic, but to think about this almost as a natural experiment to better understand how we might be able to improve access to OAT into the future to help people stay and be retained in treatment and perhaps avoid some of the barriers to that that they've experienced in the past. Would this be considered similar to what we know here in this country as the methadone maintenance clinics? People go and get their medicine and come back regularly, that type of thing. Yes. So in Canada, there are a few different models. It's not quite as centralized as in the United States, but we do have large methadone clinics where people will have to go regularly. People can also access methadone or suboxone, so the buprenorphine naloxone product from their primary care provider or smaller addictions medicine clinics. So there is a bit more variability in how people access treatment, but it is very similar in that. Most of the time, people have to go to the pharmacy every day to pick up their methadone and receiving longer take-home doses. Being able to get a couple of doses at a time or even up to a week at a time can take a very long time for somebody to access and sometimes years or never. You bring up an interesting point that people have to go to the pharmacy, you said, every day to get their methadone. Now, we live in different countries. In the United States, it has to be a specialized methadone dispensing clinic. In Canada, is it not a specialized clinic? It is a specialized pharmacy. So the pharmacies have to apply to be able to dispense methadone and and meet certain criteria. Okay. So from your perspective, what's been the concern or the hesitancy about giving larger take-home samples? Why has this even been the subject of concern? It's a larger concern with methadone, and that's because this is an opioid, and often people are being given large amounts or high doses of methadone. And if you give them six, seven, 10 days worth of methadone at a time, and somebody who's perhaps not stable on treatment and might be at risk of taking two or three days worth of doses at a time. So that was really one of the questions we wanted to tease out. When people get these longer take-home doses and have more methadone at home with them, is there a risk of overdose? going to increase. The chief concern for a lot of people in providing these longer take-home doses. You looked at the records of something like 21,000 patients over a year with a six-month follow-up beyond that. What were your findings? Those who received extended take-home doses were less likely to discontinue OAT. They were also less likely to have even just an interruption in therapy, so not a full discontinuation, but some kind of interruption where there are several days of missed doses. And we saw no increased risk of, of opioid overdose and even some signals of lower risk of overdose in some groups. So people who were previously getting daily dispensed methadone who started to get take-home doses, we saw that there was a lower risk of overdose in that group as well. 
To piggyback on Abby's point, okay, I actually just read something last night I'm reading about the history of addiction. Apparently in 1922 here in the U.S., the Supreme Court had a ruling where they said treatment with high-maintenance doses is illegal because relying on the patient's own, quote, weakened and perverted will will manage his medications can only result in gratification of a diseased appetite for these pernicious drugs. Clearly, stigmatization is a large part here. Do you think we're moving in a better direction? I hope so. And I think that is a really perfect quote to show how stigma and assumptions and discrimination against people who use drugs has been baked into our response in the past and how treatment programs have been put together. And in some ways, it's understandable when when starting to do this, that physicians and clinicians who are prescribing these medications want to feel that they're doing that in as safe a way as possible. So that's completely understandable. But at the same time, many clinicians who I work with build very strong, mutually respectful relationships with their patients and really feel like there is an opportunity there to improve their patient's quality of life by allowing them to have more flexible access to take-home doses because there are a lot of assumptions and stigma in that phrase around not being able to control yourself if you use drugs. And many people would argue against that and say that they can manage very well their opioid use disorder if they have access to the right tools. We used to discuss this years ago when I was involved in methadone clinics in New York. What are some of the specifics? Does someone have to graduate, so to speak, at a certain stage of their treatment to prove that they are reliable? Is there a certain rule of thumb that someone has to be stable for three months, six months, something like that? And concurrently in AA or NA or other respected support group before they're given the large quantities, what's the criteria if there is a criteria to be giving a larger take-home quantity? The guidance that was developed in Ontario where we did this study had several criteria. So first, there was the understanding that not every person who is receiving treatment is going to be eligible for take-home doses. And so there needs to be a a clinical assessment as to that person's stability and ability to get those take-home doses. And that's largely predicated on whether they had a recent overdose, whether they're considered a very high-risk drug user, so they just have very high-risk behaviors, they're very unstable, or if they don't have a safe space to keep that medication. Because if you don't have a safe space to keep a week's worth of methadone could get stolen, it could get used by other people. So those were the main criteria for considering that escalation of take-home doses. And then for methadone, the recommendation was that if somebody's newly starting treatment, you wait a month for them to become stable before starting take-home doses. And that was a change previous to the pandemic. It was two months. So there was still a waiting period to get people stable, but not quite as long. And then they have what they call a carry ladder, where they identified what level of take-home doses you might have been on prior to the pandemic and suggested an extended or a more flexible number of take-home doses. The recommendation was every week, assuming that everything has gone well, you could go up another rung on that ladder. So get another step towards longer take-home doses. What exactly are the doses and is there some maximum take-home dose that would be safe? So the maximum that was recommended in the guidance was between two and four weeks of methadone. So they didn't recommend getting longer than four weeks of methadone at a time or buprenorphine as well monthly dispense is similar to a lot of other chronic medications and was seen as balance between providing people with flexibility, but also making sure there's some regular engagement with pharmacies and with clinics. One of the problems that used to be a recurrent problem was the cost of the daily visits. And obviously, by giving them a larger quantity, they don't have the clinical cost of everyday visits. In Canada, when they went to the pharmacy, I guess it was just like going to any pharmacy anywhere. It wasn't the cost of a visit on top of it. It was cheaper to get the larger quantities. 
or not. It's cheaper for the government. In Canada, healthcare visits to the clinic would be paid for by the public funder because that's publicly funded. Medication generally would be as well if people are eligible for social support. So many people are having their prescriptions and their clinic visits paid for by the government. But those regular pharmacy dispensers have a dispensing fee associated with them. So every time someone gets their methadone, the government pays a dispensing fee on top of it. So there was some reaction, I would say, from pharmacies where these methadone pharmacies can make a lot of money on these dispensing fees on daily dispensed methadone, or at least more frequently dispensed methadone. And so that business model for them is more challenging if you're getting longer take-home doses. So there are some financial disincentives throughout the system for people to get this more extended, flexible take-home dose. We need to think about that. The bureaucracy, the clinics, and the pharmacies towards going back towards the more frequent dispenses because there are financial reasons for doing that we don't find other ways to address that, this won't be sustainable in, into the long term. Could you identify if it was even possible to make these separations? Were there different groups that seemed to be better able to handle them? Different cultural groups, sexes, ages, anything that would give us a sense that someone might have a greater likelihood of being a candidate for this? It's a really excellent question. We, we really flagged that as, as a next step. We know that not everybody will do well. There was a lot of variability in physicians as well in terms of the percentage of their patients who they moved over to extended take-home doses. Some moved a large majority of their patients over and some moved a small minority. There is clinical discrimination needed, but there may be some physicians who were maybe over-applying the guidance and some who are under-applying it. So how can we see who did best? and try and create some more standardized approach so that we don't have differences in equitable access to more extended take-home doses if this were to continue into the future and that there's some consistency in practice between physicians and between clinics. From legislative perspective, what's the update? What's happening in Canada? And are you aware of, of what's going on here in the United States? In Canada, this was less legislated, actually more of a, a guidance document, and those that guidance is continuing to evolve, and there are signals that people want to continue doing this into the future. In the United States, SAMHSA was the group that initially made the recommendations around changing this practice in the pandemic, and my understanding, at least as of a couple of months ago, was that there are discussions of extending that another year and then perhaps even further into the future. So I think that what's interesting with this pandemic is that it has become this natural experiment. And as there are some signals from some small studies in the U.S. and this study that we did in JAMA that identifies a potential for us to continue to expand this into the future with ongoing evaluation. Because I would say my only caveat around this is that this is what happened in the very confined circumstance of a pandemic where a lot was shut down. There were benefits and risks in terms of overdose risk and the degree of supports people had during the pandemic. And so we have to continue to monitor how that would happen and adapt. You guys really grabbed a hold of an interesting situation to study because the environmental issues were very different for multitude of reasons, namely the pandemic. Just a silly mechanical question. Because you are offering people extended take-home packages, was there any effort for people from the United States to come into Canada to get their methadone? Or is that not even possible? I don't think that would have been possible unless they came here and then engaged with a prescriber here and developed that relationship. And it would probably take some time to do that. So I don't think it's the same as what we sometimes see with cross-border shopping to kind of go and grab insulin across the border because it's cheaper. This is a bit more regulated. So I, I don't think we would have seen those patterns. Okay. Just curious. 
because this study and everything we're talking about has occurred during COVID, telemedicine obviously played a big role. How important do you think that is going into the future if we're going to be incorporating some of these extended take-home doses, the role of telemedicine? Telemedicine is so interesting, especially in this area, because it's both a barrier and a facilitator to care, because for some people, they don't have access to computers or phones. And so accessing telemedicine can actually be a barrier for them. Whereas for others, especially those in more remote and rural communities, that can be a a real benefit. I think that we're going to see that continue into the future, but I think we're going to need a hybrid model where both options are available to people so that we reduce the barriers for different people in different circumstances and make sure that we provide all of those different options to people. But certainly we become much more accustomed to telemedicine here just broadly and then as well within treatment programs. And that is also tied to the changing requirements around drug screens that were built into this guidance. So there was less of a reliance on urine drugs, which requires that in-person interaction. And by removing some of those requirements, it meant that people didn't have to physically be at the clinics as often, which then allows for more telemedicine. It speaks very nicely to a level of giving a sense of dignity to someone who's addicted to an opioid for whatever the etiology, whether it's psychosocial or metabolic or another illness. It speaks to the dignity that we trust them. It takes away from this sad, almost nefarious finger pointing image that you're defective, you can't control yourself, you're not productive. A lot of people, when they're properly treated, can have a very nice life. And by giving them the extended dosing says, we trust you. That's got to be tremendous. I applaud you for that. I agree. I think our approach has largely been quite paternalistic and providing people with that autonomy to say, like you said, we trust you and we've built this relationship and we're going to allow you to have this more flexibility that allows you to maintain employment or not have the challenges you might have as a mother with children. If you're trying to go to the pharmacy all the time and having to manage childcare, you know, it just, it takes away so many of those barriers and so much of that constant stigma that people can face if they have to get in line every day at the methadone pharmacy and feel judged for that. So you mentioned in your paper is a quote, results may be subject to residual confounding. What does that mean? So that means that this is an observational study. So it's not a clinical trial. We didn't randomize people to get extended take-home doses or not. And so there could be some other reasons why those who got take-home doses were somehow different from those who did not receive the take-home doses that would lead to them staying in treatment for longer anyway. The interesting part there is that we know there are probably some differences. We tried to do our best to balance the groups as much as possible to make them similar on sociodemographic and comorbidity profiles. But even if there are some imbalances still, it kind of shows that clinicians were able to select people who were going to do better by providing them with those extended take-home doses, and they did. Even if there is some residual confounding, which in observational studies can be a problem, I actually am less concerned about it here because it really is pretty clear that by providing people with these extended take-home doses, at least those who received them, they, they did well. And these studies that you did obviously were in Canada. Is there any reason to think it can't be extrapolated to the United States and particularly to Florida? 
I think that there are no reasons why they couldn't be extrapolated beyond the fact that you do have different healthcare systems. So obviously there are differences that way, but in actuality, I think that the way that treatment is provided is quite similar. And interestingly, when I reviewed what the recommendations were in the U.S. around COVID, they were really consistent in many ways with what was implemented in Ontario where the study was done. So I think that there's a lot that can be applied to the United States setting based on this work. How many people or how many, shall we say, files did you review? There about 20,000 and it was basically everybody. So we have prescription data for everybody who receives a controlled substance in Ontario. So we looked at every single person who was treated with methadone or with the buprenorphine naloxone product in Ontario who was on treatment before the pandemic and then looked at how their take-home doses changed during the pandemic. So we were able to really look at the population level. Were you surprised with your results? Did you expect it to be different? I'm not surprised. I was reassured because I really felt that the system was not giving people who were accessing treatment enough credit for being able to really manage take-home doses themselves. So I was optimistic that this study would show that there are a lot of benefits to doing this. I didn't know for certain. It's really hard to predict during COVID anything. And so it, it was really important study for us to do, for us to better understand the impacts. And I was very reassured from the findings the movement away from punishing people for their drug problem into the area of let's try to help. There's just so much to the way in which people who use drugs and people with substance use disorders have been treated within our healthcare system. It would be very interesting and completely unrelated in so many ways, but I'd love you to look at the number of people who did not end up in divorce who kept a job, who went back to school as a result of not having to go to the clinic every day, or the fact that you're trusting them. Yeah. We've spoken with individuals who have spoken to those exact benefits within their lives, and it would require more of a qualitative work where you interview people and understand the impacts on their lives. And you're right, hopefully some more of that work can be done as well, because some of those perspectives and stories can be really impactful as well when really humanizing what's happening around substance use treatment. One of the things that Brent and I have heard repeatedly is that the people who got better would always say that they did it because they did not feel alone. Part of not feeling alone is feeling trusted by somebody. And being trusted by the system is part of not feeling alone. I, I, that, that reverberates in my head. That may be, what do they call it, an unintended benefit, something like that? I think that's good. What are the next steps? What do you see as the next step to bring this into fruition? We need to see this ideally replicated in other places. So my hope is that there are other jurisdictions across North America who are able to do similar work to show that this is really something that can be seen consistently in different jurisdictions. And the other piece to the point made earlier is that I think we can do some more work to try and identify which people benefited most and whether there was a subset of people who maybe did experience some harm from these changes so that we can even further support that clinical decision making and help clinicians and people who are receiving OAT make more informed decisions as to the right time to receive those extended doses. Question about terminologies. We've gone from MAT to MOUD, then OAT. We're, yes. We're, what's going on here? <laughs> and we call it all different things, don't we? It's all the same thing. OAT, opioid, opioid agonist therapy is what we typically refer to it, but it's also referred to MOUD and all kinds. MAT, sure, there are others as well. <laughs> and, there'll be, and there'll be more to come. <laughs> yes. Tara Gomes is a principal investigator at the Ontario Drug Policy Research Institute. Tara, thanks so much for joining us for this important discussion. Thanks for having me.